The Egyptian History Podcast by Dominic Perry. Episode 15, The Enduring Car. Welcome back. Last time, the reign of Neusere came to an end after some three decades on the throne. In his lifetime, the royal family had been strengthened by the introduction of new blood. Elite families began to participate more and more in the highest levels of administration. In some cases, marrying into the royal family as a way of joining their households with the divinity of the king. The enormous shift from a culture dominated by sons, brothers, nephews, and cousins of the king, to one in which wealthy but non-royal persons could share in government, was a massive one. It took decades to reach maturity, and decades more to really impact the social fabric in a recognisable fashion. In the reign of Neusere and his second successor, Jedkare, the culture of the administrators, which I call elite culture, began to flourish. As mid-level administrators, not as important as the king or vizier, but more important than simple scribes and accountants, these men are one of the key windows into the Egyptian worldview beyond its focus on the royal household. It was perhaps only natural that this social group began to develop its own identity, distinct from its role as servants of the king. In time, they began to rationalise their own place in the world, and discuss ideals and behavioural codes that suited their unique position between the king and the majority of the population. As the middle class of Egypt, it is these elites who will come to dominate the Egyptian social order, eventually pushing the royal family to the sidelines and becoming the true power players in the kingdom. You may remember that one of the most important groups in the early Egyptian state was a collection of men known as the Semer Companions. Like an entourage or posse for the king, these men accompanied the ruler in his travels up and down the Nile. They represented his interests and served the ruler to receive benefits in social status and wealth. They were housed mainly in the capital at Memphis, staying close to the palace where their social status was most immediately recognised by their peers. By the 5th dynasty, the Semer companions had become inconsequential in the governance of the realm. Instead, the new title of Kentishe, or the one who is before the pool, came to the fore as an equivalent. It was a title used to enhance the social status of an individual, and empower them to oversee small collections of priests and administrators within the various temple institutions. At times, the Kentishe may have formed a bodyguard for the king, a job that was far more prestigious for the ancients than guarding a minor celebrity today. The bodyguard of the king allowed one to enter the palace's inner sanctums as a guard and confidant. I like to think of the bodyguard-slash-butler character from the Iron Man movies when I think of this. Close to the ruler, privy to his secrets and those of the court, these individuals could be considered extensions of the royal person, projecting his authority outside of the palace into places where the king himself did not go. The Kentishe served in the Abusia temples, guarding the sanctuaries and overseeing small groups of attendants. 
For this service they were rewarded with a share of the goods that were offered to the god's statue, usually food or linen, that had attained a special aura of significance by being so intimately connected with the sacred rituals. As a result, to be a Kentishe official was to be part of the new generation of social elite, the HBO entourage of 5th Dynasty Egypt. Entering into this social context were two men named Teti and Kapi. Teti's unremarkable, exceedingly common name belied the fact that this man was a high-status individual with a lot of prestige to his name. He was a Kentishe official, involved in the rituals undertaken at the Sun Temples and Mortuary Temple of Abu Zia. We are not sure exactly when he came to prominence, but the evidence suggests that it was either the later years of Neusare, the reign of Menkauhor, or the early years of Jedkare. Teti was responsible for a group of ten men serving in the royal palace, probably Kentishe bodyguards like himself. The title, Imi Ar Ten, literally translates to One Who Possesses the Tongue, Ten. What this means is that he held the right of speech and command over ten men, being something like a captain of the guard for the palace. His colleague, Kapi, held the same functions as a Kentishe official and a captain of ten men of the palace. But Kapi also served as an Imi Ar Wepet Per Ia, an overseer of the missions of the palace, deriving from Wepet, or mission, and Per Ia, great house. Incidentally, in later centuries, the compound noun Per Ia will be transformed from a term relating to the king's house and palace environment to a more general epithet of the king himself. This word, Per Ia, will eventually be bastardized into what we know today as the pharaoh. Kapi was probably Teti's superior. He was assigned the job of Imi-Ar Set Kentiushe Per Ia, or Overseer of the Place of the Kentishe of the Great House, most likely referring to the barracks or apartments in which the Kentishe officials were billeted when they served in the palace. When a person came to the palace, either to beseech the king or to attend his summons, they were greeted by this entourage of the king. A later story from the New Kingdom, the tale of Sinue, recounts the scenario thus. Ten men came, and ten men went to usher me into the palace. My forehead touched the ground between the sphinxes, and the royal children stood in the gateway to meet me. The courtiers, who usher through the forecourt, set me on the way to the audience hall. I found his majesty on the great throne in a kiosk of gold. In the reigns of Jedkare and Neusare, the people responsible for this job, the ten men, were Kentishe officials, most likely led by Kapi. They guarded the palace as overseers of the bodyguard, and acted as an honour guard for those entering the royal presence. These two men, Teti and Kapi, were favoured associates of the king, members of the social group known as the Rek Nesut, the one who knows the king. 
their service was considered loyal and useful enough that the king granted them the construction of small tombs in the royal cemeteries at Giza and Saqqara. In a small stela, Teti recorded this process. As for this tomb, I made it truly with my own goods, by virtue of my being a revered one before the king. The craftsmen worship the god on my behalf. It is doubtful that a man like Teti, who was not in the highest levels of the administration or social hierarchy, could afford to build a tomb on his own private income. More likely is that he furnished it with his own burial goods, the tomb itself being paid for by the royal treasury. The stealer, however, on which this text is recorded, was almost certainly paid for by him, commissioned at his expense to provide a testament to his relative wealth, social status, and trusted intimacy with the king. Again, in the social hierarchy, Teti was among the privileged but not necessarily the elite, so any status symbol he could afford would provide a significant boost to his status in the afterlife. In episode 13, we visited with Ta Shepses, Knum Hotep, and Ni Ankh Knum, three courtiers whose close physical proximity to the king endeared them to his generosity and resulted in the commissioning of magnificent mastaba tombs for these officials. Through the reliefs inscribed on the walls, we gained an insight into the relationships of these individuals and the value of royal favour as a tool for advancing one's social status. In the period of Nyusare Jedkare, the elite begin to emerge as a social group with some very clear behavioural guidelines. Their tombs portray literary passages that come close to a modern autobiography, recording the significant deeds of the individual and the way they viewed their behaviour as part of the wider social order. The priest Werhu, buried in a tomb at Giza, recorded the following on the walls of his burial chamber. I went from my town and descended from my gnome, having spoken ma'at there, having performed ma'at therein. I never did what is hurtful to people. I never let a man spend the night angry with me about something, ever since I was born. As I've said before, ma'at was the Egyptian conception of the world as it should be. Ma'at was both an ideal to strive for, and the proper way of doing things. It was a supernatural aspect of the world, as well as a social code of behaviour. To live according to Ma'at was to contribute to the protection of the world, from chaos and disorder. To enact Ma'at in your daily behaviour was to improve the world, and to stem the waters of chaos which surrounded creation. The king in particular was responsible for the upholding of Ma'at on a cosmic scale, by paying the proper respects to the gods, and ensuring that his divine father, Ray, was properly aided in his nightly journey. Ma'at is the most common form of justice or good behaviour evoked by the Egyptians in all periods of their history. Werhu 
placed great emphasis on the things that he had not done. He had not been hurtful to others, and he had never let another man lose sleep over something that Weru had done. The old anecdotal saying, never go to sleep angry, seems to be the gist of what Weru was saying here. To allow one to go to sleep angry risked them dying in the night, taking their anger with you to the afterlife and affecting your chances of gaining entry to the field of reeds. At least, that's the subtext. The passages referring to that which Weru had not done are a form of confession known in Egyptology as the negative confession. It is a peculiarly Egyptian form of testament in which the deceased lists not only the good and proper things he had done in his life, but also those evils which he had avoided or rectified. Werhu remarks that he never allowed one to go to sleep angry on account of his behaviour, acknowledging implicitly that at various times he had stepped on toes, or caused someone to be angry with him. But he always sorted the problem out before sundown, that time of the day in which the world was only held at bay by the collective maintenance of Ma'at. A contemporary of Werhu, named Seshem Nefer, recorded the following in his Mastaba tomb at Giza. I am buried in this tomb, having spoken Ma'at, the god's wish, every day. I used to tell the king what serves people. I never told an evil thing against people. End quote. Like Werhu's negative confession, Seshem Nefer's testament proclaims in equal terms both the good he had done and the evil he had not done. In acting according to Ma'at, he had acted according to the wishes of the god. Though it is not clear which god he speaks of, it is most likely that he speaks of the king in his eternal form as the son of Re. The idea of Ma'at was a powerful one, pervasive among the social elite, and had a powerful influence on their behaviour both in life and death. To live according to Ma'at and avoid evil deeds was to act pleasingly towards the gods and to uphold their example. It was to act in the best wishes of the king and to aid him in whatever small way you could with the enormous duty of maintaining Ma'at in the universe. To do this was to preserve creation in its most beautiful form. It helped the Nile flood annually by empowering the deities with the justice of good behaviour. It ensured the survival of the people by the abundance of harvests and ensured that all men, rich or small, were acting in accordance with the will of the gods. To better perpetuate this paradigm, it was perhaps only natural that a learned man came forward to produce something like a treatise on good behaviour, an instruction booklet for the elite that could be used to guide future generations in their behaviour. This man's name was Hor Jedef, meaning Horus endures. Hor Jedef was once thought to be a son of Khufu, the fourth dynasty king responsible for the Great Pyramid. But it is now believed that he lived and died around the time of Neusere or Jedkare. His appearance, then, is part of the great social changes coming to the fore in this era, 
changes that I will be continuing to discuss over this and the next episode. Khorjedev wrote a treatise on how to live one's life properly. Unfortunately, only a very small portion of it survives. What this does mean is that I can read you the entire thing, and I'll do so now. The beginning of the instruction, which the prince and commander, the son of the king, Horjedef, made for his son, whom he raised up. He says, Reprove yourself in your own eyes. Take care that another man does not reprove you. If you would be excellent, establish a household and acquire for yourself a wife who is strong. A male child will be born to you. May you build a house for your son, for I have built for you the place where you are. Beautify your house in the necropolis, and make excellent your place in the west. Accept this maxim, for death is bitter for us. Accept this maxim, for life is exalted for us. Seek for yourself a field that becomes inundated. End quote. The morality and ideals of Horjedef are revealed more explicitly with these few lines than all the autobiographies and tomb instructions of his contemporaries combined. When Horjedef instructs his audience to reprove themselves in their own mind, he is counselling humility and caution against arrogance. Recognising that vanity breeds distrust, he dictates that one should take care to be an example to others, to avoid being someone they can criticize. Horjedev instructs the foundation of a household. Nothing remarkable in that, it's a common ideal for many ancient cultures, and people today. He values a strong wife, which can be interpreted either as a personal or a spiritual strength, or as physical endurance and the ability to bear healthy children. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a combination of the two. Egyptians naturally placed a great value and priority on fertility and the ability to raise children. After all, in this era, childbirth was an extremely difficult and dangerous process. But they did also seem to value a spiritual and personal strength of character amongst men and women. The value of legacy is also stressed. By building a household for one's son, so that the family can be perpetuated and enriched in the next generation. He claims to have built the house in which he lives now with his family, valuing this as a worthy act of a person living by Ma'at. Finally, like most Egyptians of the day, Horjedef places a premium on building a beautiful tomb in the necropolis. To provide a fitting house for his soul is to ensure that he is well regarded in the afterlife, and to preserve his status in coming generations. Horjedev's instructions, then, are probably the first and most important discussions of Egyptian behavioural ideals that we have seen so far. Ma'at is not mentioned in this preliminary section, simply because it is concerned more with the big steps that one should take in life, rather than the ways to live according to the rules of good behaviour which probably came later in the text and is now lost. We know that the ideals described here 
are among the fundamental Egyptian attitudes to a good life from later texts, some of which quote Hor-Jedef, and some of which, well, many actually, discuss similar ideas. The following text, from the early Middle Kingdom, has this to say. The beginning of an instruction which a man made for his son. He says, Listen to my voice, do not pass by my words, do not be indifferent about what I shall say to you. In other words, sit down and listen up, I've got some wisdom to lay down. Acquire a good character without transgressing, that is, transgressing ma'at and good behaviour, for the laziness on the part of a wise man does not happen. A silent, just man is obedient and well disposed before my might. There is no valorous man who reports on one who enters into affairs. In other words, don't tattle on other people. He who interprets speech will not be sad, but a slanderous saying ruins him who says it. Following on from the don't tattle on others, he tells the listener to keep his thoughts to himself. Denouncing someone behind their back reflects as much on yourself as on the person you discuss. Egyptian morality really isn't that different from our own in many respects. It values the ideals of polite behaviour, and emphasises the wisdom of listening to those who know more than yourself, and treating others with respect. To denigrate someone reflects badly on you, and contributes nothing to the upholding of ma'at in the world. The most interesting thing about this later text is that the writer does not identify himself by name, he simply calls himself a man. It's like calling a movie character John Everyman. The idea is to write a code that anyone of good sense and wisdom can get behind. To provide learning and just behaviour for all literate people, and to establish a healthy and well-behaved generation after you're gone, is the essential crux of what he's getting at. It's exactly the same today. It's like a self-help book for the courtiers. How to win friends and influence people, that sort of thing. And it is hugely important that these sort of texts begin to emerge at this period in history. Egyptian society is changing. People not related to the king are marrying into the royal family, even becoming viziers, the second highest office in the land. Priests and officials are employed in all levels of the government apparatus, whether they have family connections to the king or not. The elite are emerging as a social group, and they are establishing their identity with a vengeance. But they're doing it within the boundaries of a system that is by this point about 500 plus years old. The king still sits at the centre of this enormous web of officials, priests, courtiers, bodyguards, scribes. At any point, he can pull a strand of this web, and the people will jump when he says it. This is not a democracy, not even close. It remains, and will continue to be, an absolute authoritarian monarchy, in the classic sense. But there is now wiggle room within the web. Individuals can present themselves more as individuals. 
Maybe they conform to certain behavioural codes and ideals, but they're no longer faceless entities in the background. They have wealth, which they've always had, and they have influence too, which they've had for a long time as well. But now, the window is opening slightly, and they are able to show themselves for the wealthy, respectable people that they are, or claim to be. Maybe it's all talk. Maybe they backstab each other constantly and fight behind closed doors, scrambling over little bits of wealth and prestige. No one really knows exactly how the Egyptian elite behaved in daily life, only the ideals that they strove towards. But that's almost irrelevant at this point, because all our evidence is pointing to a massive groundswell of social change that is redefining the role of the elite in Egyptian society. Niusure and Jedkare are either indirectly or directly responsible for this, depending on who you read. As always, it's a matter of perspective and how you categorize social trends, whether they start at the top and filter down, or whether they begin at the bottom and slowly push their way up, forcing change where sometimes change isn't wanted. I am of the opinion that the kings Niusure and Jedkare kind of, sort of, wanted it. Not because they were arsonists of their own ruling household, or even that they thought they were doing anything that would end up weakening the power of their royal descendants. Rather, I think the change was something that had been developing very slowly and incrementally. And under Niusure and Jedkare, it simply reached a certain critical point. That point is, a time when the younger generation came to power who had no experience of a world in which the elites weren't in close contact with the king and sharing duties in the government. Most of the time, the choices these kings made were little ones. Neusere probably invited Tarshepses to marry one of his daughters and seal a strong bond between the two families. I doubt he thought he was doing anything bad to the royal line. The daughter wasn't going to inherit anything anyway, and Niusere already had a son, Menkauhor, who would be his heir. But that's how change happens. Little steps are taken, and people don't realize how important they will later prove to be. Sometimes, the decisions aren't even themselves that important, and only become important because people point at them and say, that's where it began or that's where it all went wrong. No one really knows where the boundary point is. They just reach it and cross it one day when they probably aren't even thinking about their lives in the big scheme of things. But regardless of whether Nuisere and Jedkare wanted change or not, a watershed moment has been reached. The sun temples that had been established by all five rulers of the dynasty so far are no longer being built. Menkauhor decided not to commission one, and Jedkare didn't change that policy. The royal tomb has been moved from Abusir back to Saqqara, nearer to the ancient monument of Net Jediket Djoser. Jedkare is intentionally reasserting his connections with the Third Dynasty, focusing his efforts on the lineage of kingship once more. He's basically mimicking Usarkaf here. 
No more splitting the royal cult between two temples. Jed Kare restores the practice of focusing rituals and offerings in the pyramid temples, focusing on the king again in a single ritual institution. The question is, does this move signal an attempt to halt a weakening of royal authority? Or is it an attempt to redefine the balance of power from what was the status quo? That is the question we will hope to answer next time, when we discuss Jed Kare's reign from the perspective of the administrative and economic change occurring within it. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.